Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Uh, today I'm speaking again with Colin Wright. Colin is an evolutionary biologist and he's a managing editor at Colette. Hey Colin, thanks for coming back on. Hey, it's a pleasure. Yeah, so I wanted to get you back on um, to talk about sex and gender and the whole discussion around it. Um, this is one of the things in Canada, especially now, it's getting a little, uh, getting a little much, I'd say. We've got a new law coming in. Well, it's proposed. It has been passed at Bill C-6, where they label it as an anti-conversion therapy bill. But everything in there is all gender affirmation. And you've got weird things going on. So uh, there was a minister of, I think he was either a provincial parliament or the federal parliament. But he was saying, oh, no, no detransitioners is a right-wing myth. So in there, if someone wanted to detransition, like the bill specifies you cannot affirm their cisgender if they're on the road to transitioning. So I wanted to speak to you about that because I've spoken to a civil rights lawyer and I mean, there's people have concerns, you know, what are they teaching kids in school, uh, you know, putting kids on puberty blockers, that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah if you if wouldn't mind giving like a quick overview of that, <laughs> no, just yeah, a little well, small topic. <laughs> <laughs> that's way to write into it yeah. i know there's a lot of big problems with the c6 bill that a lot of physicians i've actually talked to have uh have a lot of problems with and there actually there's a lot of fear about what's going to happen to them because there's sort of a double bind that they're sort of in mm -hmm. so right now we have this affirmation therapy which is uh what is trying to be pushed through which is that if anyone comes to your clinic and they say that i'm transgender i have gender dysphoria basically they get to diagnose themselves. This is not a thing that doctors diagnose anymore, basically. You can't tell someone that we're going to explore other factors that might be causing your dysphoria and maybe treat those. And you have to immediately just jump right into, you are who you say you are. You know yourself better than anybody else. Um, we're going to try to put you on this pathway to puberty blockers, et cetera. Um, and a lot of these bills like C6 that are lumping sort of gender dysphoria into this uh, uh, these bills on, on anti-conversion therapy, they're really sort of riding on the backs of the gay movement because, you know, conversion therapy for homosexuals has been a, has a really terrible history, uh, you know, electroshock type therapy type stuff, trying to get people to, to not um, be attracted to the, the same sex. Uh, and so there's a lot of issues when you try to add gender dysphoria to that, because unlike homosexuality, where the worst outcome is not even a bad outcome. It's just like you happen to just be attracted to someone of the same sex. Like you're not harming anyone. It doesn't harm yourself. But gender dysphoria is different in the case that if you are diagnosed with this, this often puts you on a pathway to puberty blockers, which almost always leads to cross-sex hormones and then surgery, you know, lifelong dependency on certain medications. So it's not like this is an innocuous thing. Um, and a lot of doctors, they're in this double bind because, well, one, if they're not affirming so-called, you know, trans kids, uh, they're being considered to be uh, um, doing conversion therapy on them, trying to make them not trans. But we also know that the vast majority of these, these kids with the rapid onset gender dysphoria, a lot of them are same-sex attracted. A lot of them we know that would grow up to become homosexual adults. Uh, if they are just left alone. And so if you don't, if, if you do the affirmation therapy and you follow the law, well, then you could maybe be guilty of 
converting homosexuals into basically straight trans people. Uh, so there's just, there's no really good pathway for this. It's, you can, there's good arguments for being conversion therapy either way as the, as the law currently stands. Uh, we sort of need to move away from moving to, to including gender dysphoria under this umbrella of um, conversion therapy because there's, there's so many important differences between you know, what's happening in gender clinics when, an ex, when a, a clinician is trying to explore factors related to their gender dysphoria. And then the, the other side where we have homosexuals that are you know, getting abused by clinicians who are trying to change their, their sexuality. These are, these are entirely different things. Yeah, no, I mean, like, that's one of the things I've, I've been seeing, and I mean, especially, like, you know, directed towards women. Like, you know, if you're a lesbian, like, some of the things I've seen, like, oh, well, you know, suck my lady dick and things like that. I mean, it's, like, like horrific. Ab- no, but, I mean, it's horrific abuse. And you're doing this, oh, will you have to be inclusive? It's, like, you're attracted to who you're attracted to. In my mind, that is, that is like, a conversion therapy. Like, oh, you'll, you'll get to like it. You'll learn to like it. You know, oh, you're transphobic if you don't sleep with uh, a man who is now a woman, but you know, she still has a penis. And if you don't have sex with her, you're transphobic. I mean, that to me, that sounds more like the, you know, when you think of conversion therapy, oh, you just have to sleep with this person. You'll get used to it, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I think that's a definitely a problem. It's, it's hard to know how much of the, those sort of extreme cases where you have the activists, you know, the whole, yeah. you know, suck my lady dick thing. I have a feeling they're, they're not a big segment of the trans community and I don't want to have them being portrayed as sort of representatives. Uh, but it is, it is a problem because you don't really get people that are actually condemning those extreme versions of it too. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's yeah. definitely a problem and it's contributing to a lot of abuse you see of, of women online too. No, no, but I mean, okay, like those 100%, like that's a small, small segment. They come out and start saying things like that and then it has runoff effects uh, or trans, trans women in sports, a, a trans woman going to a woman's shelter or a woman's prison. Like, I think there's like, you have to be able to do, you have to be able to have like normal conversations about this. Like having a conversation about this shouldn't be, Oh, you're transphobic. You're, you know, you're trying to convert someone like, Oh, you're doing conversion therapy. Um, so, like, if you wouldn't mind going into, like, the biology of this, because I was reading, uh, I mean, I've been following a little bit of this stuff, um, but I would just finish reading Deborah So's new book, um, The End of Gender, uh, or is it what, The Gender Myth, or The End of Gender? I can't remember the name right now. That's right, um, End of Gender. Yeah. And so, I mean, she goes into that a little bit, well, actually quite a bit, but if you wouldn't mind going into, like, you know, you know is gender a binary, you know, like, the spectrum, like, you know, and then... When do they stop using sex and gender? You know, like like that, yeah. like you know, especially okay. Like I'll just ramble a little bit more. Like okay, let's take something like COVID. You know, someone who is transitioned into a woman all of a sudden doesn't have better health results because they're a woman now. I mean, the virus doesn't care; it affects men, you know, harder. So the biology is like it doesn't care. Like so, I guess the virus is transphobic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah so. there's I, th- I think i think a lot of it stems from this like terminological thicket that we sort of find ourselves in where we have different segments of society are using the word sex and gender very differently or they're using them sometimes you know interchangeably 
So if you were to look, ask many people who are sort of more on the conservative side, when you ask them, you know, what's your gender? And to them, you're, it's the same as asking their sex. They don't really distinguish between sex and gender whatsoever. Um, they seem as the same thing. People who are more further on the left, they tend to have this sort of split where gender is, well, actually, there's many different ways that they that they define gender. Sometimes it's, uh, they'll use it where it appears that they're also talking about biological sex. Sometimes they'll use it and it appears they're talking about sort of these societal norms and expectations that are put on males and females based on, you know, their perceived sex in society and sort of these, uh, based on these sort of sex stereotypes. And some people use gender to mean just sex-related differences and behaviors that we have, whether it's innate or, or learned. And then you have sort of these um, more gender activists that just sort of visit, just sort of think about it as a type of identity that they have. It's this deep-seated feeling that they have. They can't really explain, but it's there. Um, so that's sort of on the left what they mean by gender. And they used to have the separation between biological sex and gender. The, the main mantra they would always say, you know, sex and gender are different. You know, sex is biology, but gender is how, how you identify and has to do with your expression. And I was largely on board with sort of that framing. It's like, okay, as long as we're making this distinction, as long as sex is this one thing that it's, you know, we, we know what that is. It's referring to, you know, the, the type of reproductive anatomy that your body has developed, you know, in, into the production of either sperm or, or ovaries. As long as we have that clear, then people can go ahead and use gender terminology to describe expression or whatever. I was always okay with that until you started seeing these articles in sort of Nature and Scientific American, and they're just sort of using sex and gender interchangeably. Now they're no longer saying that gender is a social construct, but also biological sex is a social construct, or maybe it exists on a spectrum where you can't even talk about males and females, you know, as, as these discrete categories, but you can only sort of talk about maleness and femaleness, and there's just degrees of being male and female. It's, it's not one or the other. Um, and so, yeah, so this is sort of where we are now, where we have this mass denial that sex is a real thing or that it's uh, uh, the social construct. So the, the basics about what biological sex is, I guess, if we want to go into that, um, it's really related to, so let me back up one second. You can kind of look at it on two different sort of levels. If you look at it on a population, sort of an evolutionary biology definition of what a male and female is, it's defined by the size of their gametes or their sex cells, so sperm and egg. So sperm are the small uh, motile sex cells. Eggs are these large uh, stationary sessile sex cells. Um, the sex that has the smaller uh, sex cell is considered males and the sex that has the larger ones are considered females. That's just the definition of what a male and female is um, at, a, at a conceptual level. But there's a little bit more, I guess it gets a little bit more messy to some degree when you're actually trying to assign the sex of individuals or determine the sex of what this one person is or this one animal is or insect is. And what we basically use there, because when, when an infant is born, they're often not making gametes, so you can't tell what gametes they're making. So we look at basically uh, their primary sexual uh, organs. So uh, do they have testicles, they have a penis, they have a vagina. These are strongly correlated with the types of uh, gonads that an individual is going to have. So when we look at an individual, we want to know what, what is your sex? 
basically what we're asking is what type of sexual reproductive organs have you developed uh, and are they the type that are generally consistent with the production of sperm or the type that generally produce uh, ovaries um, or sorry uh, eggs ova and you know you may be, you might not ever create sperm you might not you might grow up and you might be sterile or you might have some sort of developmental condition where you you're infertile but as long as you have those reproductive organs that are organized to produce you know this type of sex cell that's what we mean when we're talking about whether somebody as an individual is male or female and we're getting a lot of people that are trying to deny that or they're trying to say that that's just our, our, our bias and we just arbitrarily chose that as a definition, even though, you know, this is something that is, that is consistent across the animal kingdom. Any, any organism that has, has sexes, whether it's alligators who use heat to determine their, uh, the sex of an individual uh, or development, they still have either these certain reproductive structures that we're looking at. It holds for insects, holds for plants, all across the animal kingdom. So they're trying to carve out like a little special uh, special place for humans and, and act like uh, we can just change the rules when, when when we want to. Okay, well, you mentioned change the rules because I mean, again, like I've been following some of the you know like the the social justice stuff for a while. Now, in the '90s, I guess it was the '90s when you had the intelligent design BS come in. <coughs> you know, it was biology departments for the most part that fought against this because it's, you know, encroaching on your domain. But now when you have biologists themselves, you know, or some saying, well, no, it's a spectrum. It, it, it doesn't have it. You know, when you have biologists themselves denying biology or when you have other departments in the academy denying biology and there's an attack on biology from the inside, like who's going to, who's left to defend when, intelligent design comes around again because i mean the evangelicals aren't just sitting there right? <laughs> you know they're they're like they, they've been trying to get this stuff in for a while and if they see a weakness they're gonna strike okay if we take apart you know i don't want to put to light like the damage you can do to kids by giving them puberty blockers and all that like you know I'm not, i don't want to make light of that but if you just hold that to the side right now i mean we're losing our sense making you know like what happens when if biology departments give this stuff up and the next pandemic happens? Like, how are you supposed to check for who it affects more? Who's, you know, uh, is it men, women, boys, girls, like, like, you know, older, younger, like if you don't have biology, how are you supposed to fix that? Yeah. I, th I think you give, bring up a good point of talking about intelligent design type stuff and comparing it to the sex denialism. Because what we had before was a situation where the attacks to evolution and biology were coming from outside of the academy. You know, they're coming from pastors and churches and, and religious people. And I mean, there's always sort of a political bias in the academy. But if you look at the people who were some of the strongest supporters of evolution, who were combating the intelligent design people, it's people like Ken Miller, who's a, a devout Catholic who is out there just, you know, basically slamming all these anti-evolution arguments and just dunking on them. And he was one of the main people that are arguing for, for evolution and against intelligent design. Um, so th there, was, there wasn't a whole lot of politics, I think, involved 
in that debate before it was mainly just here's the scientific arguments for these you know a lot of biologists you know they're they're not really tend to be very religious but that really wasn't the angle that they were going at um but now we have this problem with this whole sex denialism because um whereas the evangelicals you know they they couldn't really influence the evolutionary biology because they didn't have any power in the academy they they just don't have a good foothold um to to really enact a lot of change but now we have these sex denialism coming from within the biology departments i mean the people that i knew in biology and who i shared a lab with they're they're peddling this type of stuff and when people push back like me they get denounced on social media and you know if i was looking for professor jobs and tenure track positions. Well, I had a bunch of students at Penn State that were talking to the diversity officers on my campus saying how my presence on campus made them feel unsafe, knowing that I had just, I basically, I'm just existing there, even though I'm just a biologist studying ants and wasps. And I mean, I'm not going to like, I'm not stalking people on campus. I'm not going to jump out of the bushes and attack them. Like, what's to feel unsafe? It's just, it's just ideas you're looking at here. Um, and so, yeah, so that is a problem because we, the, the attacks are behind enemy lines basically now, uh, and we can't feel comfortable speaking out against these things when our colleague is next to us and they're not interested in having that scholarly debate on these things. They just want to shut you down. They want to denounce you on social media and try to cancel you when you do this. So it's, it's a terrible problem. I mean, there's a lot of people who I speak to and I get emails from who would like to speak out against this stuff. Uh, and they just, they just don't think they can. Fortunately, I've, I've recently been contacted by a few uh, editors from fairly major journals who are interested in getting a, uh, my, my take on something. So we might be seeing some actual peer reviewed pushback on this pretty soon that I'm hoping to spearhead. We'll see how, we'll see how that goes. Well, I mean, I just read, uh, it was a new NBC news article I saw today about a new study that came out that's saying, oh, gee, maybe trans women you know, in women's sport gives them an unfair advantage. And they were talking about like doing like a two-year delay uh, before they go into you know, competitive sports so that way they could have like more female hormones and stuff. But I still think that's still an unfair advantage. But yeah, so I mean, there is something coming here. Like I was really surprised to see that on NBC. You know, like I figured mm-hmm. if it was, you know, if it was NBC, you know, maybe on Fox, but like... <laughs> I was surprised to see it anywhere else. Yeah. There's a lot of good publications out. I know that uh, uh, Dr. Emma Hilton and uh, I can't remember her co-author. They recently had a a huge review paper that came out. that looked at all the current papers, the longitudinal studies that are looked at uh, um, the effects of of hormone suppression or cross sex hormones on on trans athletes. And the, the evidence is very clear that no, you're even after several years, your muscle mass is not equivalent to that of a female. And even if you were to go and say that like, oh, you know, even after five, 10 years, maybe if it, if it eventually gets there, well, cross-sex hormones still don't change anything like how tall you are. They don't change your skeleton in any significant ways. They don't change how big your hands are and how big your tendons are. And these are all influential for, for playing sports too. So there's, I think, pretty good arguments to, to suggest that even if we could bring muscle mass to where we want to get it to that's muscle mass is only one aspect of the male advantage in sports. So yeah, we're, we're seeing more, we're seeing more pushback and more, it's it's getting easier to talk about these things in public than it used to be. 
Yeah, but I mean, even like bone density, right? I mean, estrogen helps increase bone density. Yeah. I mean, like after women get into menopause, they take estrogen because their bones could get brittle, like osteoporosis, right? So estrogen helps keep your bone density. And if you're a male already that's trans- transitioned to a female or a man who's transitioned to a woman, I don't want to, I shouldn't say male and female, like you still got male bones and they're a lot denser and a lot stronger. And then if you start taking estrogen, you're going to make them even, yeah, you're yeah. going to keep that strength for longer. Like, I mean, it's, it really is crazy. I mean, we I, I can't even believe we're here talking about this type of stuff. Cause when it, when it first appeared, I just had some friends and I looked around, I was like, this is clearly insane. Right. And you know, some of them were on, and strangely, a lot of them who sort of agreed with me back then who are in academia right now, I have the tweets to prove how much they thought it was just as insane as I did. Now they are toe in the line and they're talking about how, you know, we agree that all women should be able to compete as they, as they identify. And I'm just like, I have the receipts of when you said this was as insane as young earth creationism or flat earthism. And they just, they just turned their, they just switched. I still don't get like how this helps biology. You know, you can't track for diseases. You can't track for more men get heart attacks than women. You know, like these things matter. Yeah. I mean, I had that article. I don't know if you read it, the latest Colette article that is, was attacking the, the, the New England Journal of Medicine when they made those claims they wanted to take sex off birth certificates or move them below the demarcation line. And one of their claims was that biological sex serves no clinical, has no clinical utility whatsoever. And it's just one of the most insane claims I could hear anybody make because there's review after review that demonstrate that that is just it is probably one of the most most relevant clinical things you could you could possibly know about somebody uh in order to know anything multiple things about their biology and what types of risks they have for things like heart attack and how they're going to handle certain medications so yeah it's just we're just living in the upside down right now it's really it's so bizarre a lot of this stuff, the the race stuff, I'm like, okay, you're injecting social significance into race. You're going to create more racists with this stuff. Like I said, we're we're like everywhere I look, we're losing all our all our sense making. It's going out the window. I mean, okay, just with COVID, yeah. Like I mean, I don't know how many doctors come out and march and protest for. Like some actually went out and marched and protest for BLM. You had New England Journal of Medicine saying racism is the worst virus in COVID. Uh, I'm trying to remember who else said it. I think the AMA said it. Uh, I mean, you know, like, and all this stuff coming out. And But, I mean, there was it was so one-sided this summer. And I mean, even now, like when Biden won, all those people going out and celebrating Biden's win. And it's like, there is a virus going around. There is, you're yelling and screaming and hugging in the middle of this. And you had the New England Journal of Medicine saying racism is worse than COVID. At one point or other, someone's going to get sued or someone's going to have to get sued. Like, I mean, especially with like the trans stuff. I see that the same way as I see like the, the repressed memories thing where like all those, you know, I think it was like 50 or 60 kids sued yeah. uh, psychiatrists. I mean, but this is going to be a lot worse. Like there was, wasn't that one case in uh, England recently, uh, Kira Bell, the young woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was I a mean, huge case. That should give people some, like a word in Canada, we're just, Steaming, you know, steaming along. Same thing in Australia; they're steaming along. But wouldn't that at least give politicians or something just a little bit of pause, saying like, you know, maybe we are damaging the kids? Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of lawsuits pushing back on 
many different hydras, you know, heads of this hydra that is critical theory. Uh, we're seeing the Kirabel case is one huge case, and the, the UK seems to be just a lot more reasonable on these things um, than, than other places right now. They're, they're way more organized. Um, we also have that lawsuit by uh, Gabriella Clark in, I think it's in Santa Barbara, because her kid was at this one school and they had the sociology of change. Um, I think she's in Nevada. Uh, educational. I think she's in Nevada. Sorry. Is that where, oh yeah. Oh yeah, Las Vegas area. Yeah, sorry. And uh, so they're suing their school right now. That was a big, big story that just, uh, that I released recently. And their case seems pretty convincing. It's a lot of insanity going on with the whole critical race theory and the way they want peoples to give their identities and then, you know, assign those identities either as an oppressor or an oppressed class and then, you know, get people to admit that they're an oppressor. And this is just so toxic. Uh, This can't be legal to have in any sort of public school. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of these lawsuits coming from this is where it has to be made because you get one lawsuit, this can just have a huge domino effect. And then, you know, because if once you, once you get set a precedent for one of these things, well, there's so many cases that are just like this, this uh, Gabriella Clark's case. This is happening in hundreds, if not thousands of schools across the United States. If we have this one clear example that gets, you know, that gets destroyed in court, then, you know, you're just going to see, you're going to get the lawyers, you're going to start seeing billboards, you know, that you see, you know, for, you know, right now they're accident lawyers, like involved in an accident, call me. Now they're going to be like, do you see critical race theory in your school? Give well, me yeah. a call. That's what no, we need totally. to happen. Okay, but I mean, what they're doing, uh, and I just, I spoke about this with a couple of people recently, but in 2015, a school in New York, it was called the Fieldstone Academy. Um, they sent out, emails or letters to the parents asking for the race of their kids. Now it's K through eight school. <laughs> they took the kids for 45 minutes a week and separated them by race. And all the races, except for the white kids, they got them to talk about the accomplishments of their race and the white kids, they got to talk about their privilege and how they've oppressed people. And within a matter of a few weeks, the white kids started spouting white supremacist stuff. And it's like, well, gee, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> you know, it's like, this was K through, like I said, the academy is K through eight. And I think this was only done through K through five. So that's like five, like between like five and 10 years old. And you're doing that to little kids. I mean, there was a school in England as well. I think the uh, documentaries on uh, Netflix, like uh, the school that tried to fight racism and the same, same thing you know, same age groups. And it's, what are you doing? Yeah, it's not surprising. Oh, yeah. uh, no, I, I, these people should be sued. Like, oh, one thing I was kind of disappointed, <laughs> Kimberly Crenshaw and a bunch of people uh, took on the the Trump executive order and the Ninth District Court in Texas gave them an injunction with the Ninth District Court, from what I understand, has been kind of like anti-Trump for a while. Now, they gave an injunction to stop that um executive order i'd love to see biden keep it on and have this thing go to the supreme court because that executive order is obviously trump didn't write it but i mean all it says is you can't have training that stereotypes or scapegoats one race it doesn't talk about critical race theory doesn't talk about intersectionality doesn't talk about any of it It just says you can't do this in your diversity training and they were losing their minds and people still don't seem to realize like they're losing their minds for a reason here like can see how the narrative has changed because if you if you do read the executive order it is very clear 
Like, I, I just don't know how anybody could disagree with what it actually says if you read the executive order. Uh, but you see sort of a lot of these left-wing outlets, they're immediately trying to portray it as Trump doesn't like, you know, racial yeah. sensitivity training is what they'll call it, or, or, you know, any, any of that stuff, which is like, that's not what this is. This is a whole different beast. It's a, it's a complete ideology that is basically cultish in the way they go about things. But this is the, that's, this is the narrative they're going to go with. What he's, they're going to say that this is an anti-racial sensitivity training thing, even though it specifically says you can't use rate to stereotype or scapegoat people. It's, it's very much anti, it's, it's, it's very much an anti-racist bill. You know, yeah, Kendi should like this type of thing. Um, yeah, but this is a, some of this is a little, it's getting a little too far, but I kind of like on this, the same thing with the lawsuits. There's a lawsuit in Canada for it was a school in ottawa i believe it was a six-year-old girl in kindergarten and the teacher put up a little spectrum of where are you on the gender spectrum and she picked the far end of the girl thing. Was a little kindergarten girl five or six years old i'm a girl she was told by her teacher there's no such thing as a female like that you're somewhere on the spectrum like and so the parents are suing the school you know and good for them but I don't know how that's going to go, you know, seeing that we're in Canada. I mean, we had Bill C-16, which was, uh, you know, the identity bill. That's what gave Jessica Yanev the right to go sue 14 spas because they wouldn't shave her balls. Um, you know, that's, but yeah, I mean, so I, I don't know how that would go, but I mean, I, I hopefully we start seeing more of that in Canada because, again, you're, you shouldn't be telling kindergartners that, no, there's no such thing. I mean, you know, I have no problem. Like I've been looking at some of the, so like it's called SOGI one, two, three, and that curriculum is coming across Canada. And I've been looking at some of it going through it. And the majority of it is like, okay, yo, some people, you know, some boys like boys, some girls like girls, that's fine. And that should be no problem. And also if it says like, yo, sometimes when people are adults, oh, a man will decide to become a woman or something like that. Like, if you want to introduce it, I don't know. But I think parents should have the right to opt out of you know, sex ed if they want. But then when you look at some of the other gender stuff, it's giving them, a, it's telling them that no, 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 genders, there's no such thing. You can be whatever you want. It's not just you know, some people when they grow older feel that they're not right and they go do something else. You know, like it's, it's just telling them that, there, that gender doesn't exist. The, the, the thing I hate the most about it is how it just pathologizes gender nonconformity to some degree. So in the past, we could just have females who were, who were tomboys, who they were just, you know, they had, they were stereotypically masculine in a lot of, a lot of ways. They liked the more rough and tumble play. They maybe had more friends who were males. And then you had sort of males who were similar, but opposite and where they're sort of more feminine, effeminate. They had more, friends that were where there were girls they might like to play with dolls more or whatever you, you you get this there's there's plenty of overlap between the sexes and what a lot of this gender ideology is doing it is saying that if you have if you're gender non-conforming male well maybe you're actually a female and it's you know and vice versa rather than saying males and females both have a broad spectrum of the ways they can express themselves and just because you're not a masculine male doesn't mean you're any less male. Just because you're a, a masculine female doesn't make you any less female. 
we can embrace gender nonconformity, and I think we should to some degree and make it so we don't discriminate against people for having these sort of uh, traits that are that are atypical. They're not even atypical. They're just somewhat less common for for their sex without pathologizing it and saying that, no, now you're trans because you happen to have these different types of behaviors. I mean, you had like David Bowie back in the day. He was a you know, gender non-conforming person. Now today, they would almost certainly try to be transing him. No, it's 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 crazy. But I mean, like with the with the especially with, like I said, with little kids, and they get them on, start giving them puberty blockers. I know that's they do that a little bit, like whatever. It's, it's still early, like around eleven or twelve, they'll do that. But that's still crazy. Like that that gender non-conforming. I mean, I think back to about the late nineties, and we were kind of going in that direction. Like yo. Know, if they were getting rid of like girls and boys sections in toy stores, they were just kids toys, you know, and a little girl wants to go pick up a, a Tonka truck. Go ahead. And a little boy wants to go pick up a doll. Go ahead. Like it was, we were trying to get away from that. Oh, this is, you know, these are boys toys and girls toys. This is your kids toys. And yeah, that's, you're a tomboy. You're a girl who likes to do these things. You're a boy who likes to do those things. Now, if when they get, if when they become an adult and you know what, they're like still I'm, I should have been a woman or I should have been a man. I think we should allow people to do that. It, for me, it's the, it's when it gets to kids and it's like, I look at like teenage girls now cause I'm, I'm seeing a lot more of that. And I just wonder if like the intersectionality plays into it in a bit, because when you start getting that in schools as well, and you're telling them you're oppressed as a girl, you won't get ahead. It'll never help you. Know, you'll never get ahead because of this. And at the same time, they're told that they can become a man. You know, why not become a man and not have those yeah. disadvantages? You know, it's it's amazing how they're they constantly rail against sort of the the binary as being this terrible thing, but yet what they're doing is enforcing this binary of of gender by saying if you happen to be a gender nonconforming male, then oh, maybe you're a female now. You're immediately put into this other box rather than expanding, you know, the concept of, of what it means to be a male or a female or a man or a woman. Um, it, when, I think the reason it's so toxic to especially young children and teenagers and adults in, in, as well is because they, they look at any degree of gender nonconformity and they look at that as sort of evidence that you might be trans to some degree. But everybody is gender non-conforming and to some degree on one thing. I mean, no one is, no male is like Randy Macho Man Savage and all these traits, you know, no one is a, a perfect platonic version of masculinity or femininity. No one does, no one is. I'm more masculine on some traits. I'm more feminine on some other ones. You know, we're all just sort of this mix of various degrees on different axes of masculinity or femininity. And they're using this fact, the fact that everyone is in some sense non-binary as this way to sort of get in people's brains and get them to think about what their gender is and is it, is it matching their body? And then, then they tell them that sex is a social construct too. So there's not even anything that's acting as an anchor for anything in their life. And then you're just confusing these kids by saying that, oh, if you have these, any sort of gender non-conforming behaviors, then, then you're just as male as a male or just as female as a female, you can just pick and choose and biology be damned. I mean, they, they just throw it out the window completely. And, and it wouldn't be so bad if we were all just sort of these sexually amorphous mm -hmm. entities, but that's not the case where we are either male or female. 
And there's consequences for believing you're not or believing you're the opposite because you can get, you know, you'll have these puberty blockers and you start carving away at your flesh. And this is, this is, this is, this is not healthy to do for, I think for some people, as you, I think mentioned, yeah, this, there is such a thing as gender dysphoria. It's a real thing. It's not just being gender nonconformist. Like that's a totally different thing. That's, you know, gender dysphoria is a, is an actual psychological condition that people can have that shouldn't be confused with gender nonconformity. And we need to be able to make, to identify those individuals who could actually benefit from sort of transitioning when they're older and make that available to them. But yeah, it's, it's the kids that we need to worry about. And when you're telling kindergartners or first graders to choose where they are on the spectrum, as you say, and then saying, no, no one's, no one's this perfect all the way to the right or the left on this thing. Kids don't know about gender. They don't know about expression. They don't know what biological sex is that much anymore. They're just sort of, they're so confused about what's going on and they're going to grow up just to be even more confused. It's, it's already a confusing thing for most adults <laughs> to talk about sex and gender expression. You're not going to get four or five-year-olds to understand yeah. this stuff. How much of it do you think um, is the parents? There was that one woman, I believe she released two videos. Um, the first one was, I think it was her son who said that he's a girl now and he was like doing it in a church, like a woke church or something like that. And then you, then you see another video where she's like, Oh, I was pushing this on the, on my son. When I hear, I see stuff on Twitter. Oh yes. Well, our four year old is going to be raised, you know, uh, with, with no gender. How much of that is the parents? Yeah. Like, I think, yeah. I, th- I think of those cases where you get the parents raising mm-hmm. the, the babies or what they call them. I think those are probably a rarer. I think the main issue we have right now is the way social media is creating these sort of enclaves on the internet where people can go to Tumblr and they're only getting this this one sort of narrative on on trans ideology. And now it's not even just Tumblr. Now you get Nature mm-hmm. and the New England Journal of Medicine that are talking about sex being non-binary and you know interchanging sex and gender as if they're the same thing when they're not. So we get this imp- imprecise language that's leading to more confusion get scientific American doing the same thing. So there's this, all this confusion out there and no one can get the right information from, from any, any trusted outlet because the ostensibly trusted outlets that we're supposed to, you know, nature and new England journal of medicine, they're giving them this gender ideology. No one's going to sit there and tell them the basic fact that you are a male or you're a female that can't be changed. You can identify however you want to, but that doesn't change your biology. This isn't like some sort of alchemy that you can just declare yourself one sex and become that. No one's telling that to people. <laughs> that's just what we need to do. We need to have an adult in the room that's just walking in and saying that like, here, we just need to get this, set this groundwork here of what it is to have a biological sex. And then, you know, frankly, you can do whatever you want after that point. Once, once you realize that this is something that's foundational, express yourself however you want, behave however you want, you know, have, all that stuff is fine. Like we just need to make this partition. That's, that's what made me st- step up for the first time and sort of become vocal about this is for a long time, biological sex was this thing that was understood as being distinct from all of that other stuff, expression, society, socialization, everything. And it was when I saw that boundary start to break and then starting to leak over uh, they were they were overstepping into a territory that 
I knew very well. <laughs> and, and that's when I said, okay, you know, they're, they've reached the gates <laughs> and they're trying to come in and I can't just sit back anymore. I need to, I need to say something about this because once they can take out biological sex as being a real thing, if that can be denied on in mass by a large subset of the population, we're all totally screwed because then there's just nothing that you can, you can deny anymore like that, that you can't deny. Uh, every, anything's, nothing's real. If you get to, if we get to this point. So this is the hill <laughs> that I've chosen to die on because there's just going to be no more hills to die on. If you don't, if you don't pick one. But you'd mentioned like, you know, people with gender dysphoria who they might get left aside with this, but there's also like the intersex. I mean, I know, I know before they used to do like, oh, you look more like a boy, so we'll do a surgery and we'll, we'll make you a boy and whatever. But if you play around with the spectrum thing, like, aren't they kind of being left, like just being swept aside as well? Like you're not really looking at any issues that might be dealing with them because now where do they fit in? If you're denying biology, where does someone who's intersex fit in? Like, Yeah, there's a bad aspect of the sex spectrum narrative where a lot of times they'll they'll say that they favor the sex spectrum way of looking at things because they think it protects intersex babies from having this unnecessary surgery so they'll say that uh you know it's, it's totally normal if sex is a spectrum then there's no such thing as an abnormal baby that has that needs to be operated on um where whereas i think that is actually going to contribute more to those type of surgeries. If you say that sex is a spectrum, then presumably there's surgeries that you can do that could make you actually more mass, more male and more female, literally. Uh, but I think we need to understand that that's not the case, that a lot of these people who have intersex conditions, they're just as male and female as a male who doesn't have an intersex condition. They just happen to have this developmental issue where their genitals may not have, have fully developed in a certain way. There might be some degree of ambiguity on the surface, but we can still look one layer deeper and realize what has happened here. And they still have maybe fully, fully functional internal reproductive organs that are matched their, their sex. Um, and so I think if we just, if we're just honest with people saying that, you know, yeah, intersex conditions happen, it doesn't mean that they're not male or female and we should maybe just broaden our categories or the way we think about what is the appropriate way for a, you know, a male's genitalia look on the outside, you know, it doesn't mean if they have, uh, uh, like there's one condition it's called hypospadias that males have. And some people designate that as an intersex condition. It's when your urethra is sort of underneath your penis more than on the tip of it. And a lot of times they would do the surgery where they would try to make it so that would that would go away and it would they'd correct it, but then you can have complications and you can have infections. And it's not it's not a condition that is actually needs to be treated. Some people have it and they they're totally functional, and some people choose to have the surgery when when they're older. Um, but they're not any less male or uh, sorry, they're not any less male because they have this you know this slight deformity, this developmental condition. And rather than say, oh well, you know sex is a spectrum. So yeah, you, you might not be totally male, uh, but that's okay. Well, that's not going to, that's not going to ensure people, someone with this condition, they don't want to be said like, Oh, I just don't want to be, I, I shouldn't have to just be comfortable with the fact that I'm not really as male as other people. Like, no, you're just as male as they are. You just have this condition. To me, that seems like it would be more of a realistic way to, to, to stop people from operating on infants than it would be to say is, uh, 
you know, no one's really male or female anyway. So what are, what are we doing to these, these babies? Yeah. I mean, that's the same thing with like little kids. Like I was, you know, I was like, if, if you got a little boy and all of a sudden he wants to wear dresses, that's how you're a little boy. You, you might say, okay, you might get teased at school or whatever, because they're little kids and you know, little kids are assholes. <laughs> but, you know, I, I still don't understand that. Like, I don't understand why you have to tell the child that they're, you know, you're X or Y, you're no longer what you were. Like, it's, to, to me, that's also stifling imagination. Kids, kids imagine, you know, like I pretended I was a dinosaur. Like my parents weren't you know, taking me out to get a tail attached or something for crazy. Yeah, I, I was a Ninja Turtle every day when I was in kindergarten, first grade. That's what I played every recess. <laughs> no, but I mean, like it is stifling imagination. It is stifling. Like I said, if a, if a little boy is artistic or whatever, and he decides to do a little thing for at school where he's or pretends he's a girl, and then all of a sudden, nope. Like we have to affirm your identity. Like again, that's another thing that's happening in Canada, where without the parents knowing, and I believe this is happening in Ontario, so the kid could be Joseph at home and Josephine at school, and they won't tell the parents. That's going to be causing some problems for the kid. Yeah, absolutely. I can't remember where I heard this from, but somebody said we need to be able to treat children as children, and in fact, to treat children as though they were adults is a form of child abuse. You know, we can't let kids who are five tell us who they really are, you know, because when I was five, as I mentioned, I, I thought I was Donatello. I thought I was a Ninja Turtle. And on another day, I thought I was a different one. And we just can't let children define who they are to the point where they're going to get sort of medical interventions uh, you know, you can define who you're, you know, I'm not going to, if I had, I don't have kids, but if I did, okay, today you can be Donatello. That's fine. You're Donatello, play in the yard, do what you want. But at the end of the day, we need to come back from imagination land and we need to just, you know, this is make believe, this is pretend, here's the reality situation. I mean, this is basically what Mr. Rogers did on his show is he would, everyone was in the realm of reality, but when he wanted the kids to to go and use their imagination, they took the trolley. They would take to the trolley to was it imagination land? Might even been, and they would they would they would take the trolley, and then now now they now they were in the realm of make believe where things could be crazy and weird, and but he always made sure that these were distinct realms, and then we'd come back to reality, and now we're not make believe anymore. Now we're you know back in the real world, and I just we don't we don't have a trolley anymore. We're just we're just blending imagination land and, and the real world. Yeah, we, need to, we need to do, take the Mr. Rogers approach, I think. And that would be way preferable. Yeah. It's a whole, it's a whole different trolley problem. Again, like I've been looking at this stuff for a while and just kind of like, just trying to figure out what happened. And it was just because I, mean, I think I mentioned to you last time we were on, like when I came back in 2014, I wanted to know why I was being called a white supremacist for speaking out against Islam. You know, it just is like, okay, that's, first of all, I'm not white enough. And second of all, like, what's going on here? And that's when it led me down this whole social justice rabbit hole and like just reading all this stuff. But around the late nineties is when this real shift happened, I think with the race stuff and with the gender and queer theory stuff up until about the early nineties, it wasn't, they weren't defined departments in schools as far as I can tell. And once it became defined departments and you had people coming out with, the masters and PhDs and that stuff, they got middle management jobs and 
stuff started coming in more and more. So it's if we could do that reset and respawn, like you know, like in a video game, respawn back to 1998 and go back to that mindset. I think it would be a lot better. I mean, climate change, important issue. You know, I'd like to live. You know, I've got a niece and a nephew. I'd want them <laughs> to like have a long life. And but how the hell are we going to deal with climate change when they want to bring in climate justice and say, well, you know people of color are more affected by climate change than white people. It's like, okay, well, you can't mm-hmm. fix climate changes for people of color. You can fix it for the whole world or you can fix it for no one. I mean, it's the same thing with this. Like we're not even having a secondary conversation. We're having like a tertiary or, you know, like a, like a fourth level conversation on this stuff. Yeah. The, the, the politics is making everything impossible to talk about because we just there, once you see that some sort of, organization, some institution that is supposed to be there for everybody, that's supposed to be a trustworthy organization, like the National Academy of Sciences or something. Once you see them parroting these clearly partisan points, queer theory, queer theory, all this stuff, you immediately lose half the population who doesn't buy into this stuff. They can just see that the it's it's been taken over by some ideology and so now you're not going to trust any other stuff that comes out that has any relation whatsoever to politics because you saw how insane they were to the point where they're denying that we should put sex on birth certificates now because there's no clinical relevance. So how are you going to trust them on something like climate change when this is also another political uh, an area that's, that's mired in politics? Or how are you going to trust any sort of study on police shootings now when you get people that are retracting studies, not because they had bad data, but because they didn't like the backlash they were getting for it. So yeah, you just can't, people losing complete trust in these organizations. Um, I still think a lot of research that doesn't have any political influence, like we're probably still doing great research on like the mating behaviors of, you know, chickadees and stuff like that's probably legit because no one cares about that. It doesn't have a political angle, Uh, but so much does. And we just, we can't let, these these political narratives just take these things over because I mean I think it's been called the the legitimation crisis by Douglas Murray and it's it's real once you lose trust in these institutions man things can get bad really fast <laughs> you know you're gonna the whole society is just gonna cordon themselves off into these bubbles and nobody can talk to each other we lose the ability to to talk about reality when you mentioned that now the Journal of American J A M A so it's they put out a study about COVID. They were talking about, okay, I think it was like white people got hit harder. More, more black people had it, but white people had a harsher effects. And then they broke it all down and they came out and said, okay, there's no biological reason. There's no, one of the, re- you know, the, the reasons is, well, there were more black people working in like stores and working in warehouses. Uh, you're talking about, New- they only did New York City. So you're talking about New York City. So it's densely populated. They were living, you know, the neighborhoods they were living in were more densely populated. New York Times puts out a thing, well, well, black people are getting affected more because of racism. And mm-hmm. Cuomo just said something similar recently. And it's, okay, you're taking a, a legitimate study that doesn't say what you're saying it says. And it's coming out in the New York Times. A lot of people might not read that article in like JAMA or whatever it's called, but oh, yeah. they might read the New York Times article about it. And they're like, oh, well, see, it's racism. I don't trust the media anymore, which I mean, it, it really sucks. Like I don't have a place to go where I can get, proper news i've heard about an app that's supposed to be pretty good for this where it tells you okay you're only reading these things go read this and it kind of gives you a balanced thing i might check that out but 
I don't, I, I, I don't trust the Washington Post. I, I mean, okay, it's like I, I don't trust Breitbart or Fox or the New York Post either. I trust individual people. Yeah, I've, I've started following. I've started following yeah, individual people that I have followed before, and I've developed some some degree of trust in their reporting because I saw how they got certain things right in the past. But yeah, if it's coming down to organizations and entire newspapers, I can't just trust any organization whatsoever. Some are better than others, I think, but you know, it's it's all on an individual basis for me now. Uh, but uh, I mean, like the New York Times, forget even the science stuff and things. It was just, you know, earlier this year, they put out this thing about China. It was basically coming down to a post-colonial thing, like giving China, giving Hong Kong democracy would be a worse oppression than letting the CCP take take them over because that's another form of colonialism. And it's like, what are you people saying? Like, honestly, like, you know, and the staff, like, in a Tom Cotton editorial, I didn't, I didn't agree with Cotton at all. I thought that was crazy. Like, oh, you, know, you don't want to bring in martial law or anything like that. But the reaction from the staff, like, that, that's, I mean, like, how do you trust that now? Well, yeah, and what's worse is how the New York Times changed their editorial practices in, in response to that, saying that we're going to make sure that, you know, we, we talk it over with people from certain identity backgrounds and racial groups before we publish anything. So, so now you now, now everything this this the process to get anything published there and it has to go through this ideological filter now where it's you can't trust anything that's coming out of there. And now we have Nature too because they had that article they just retracted on female male mentorships and uh, they they've now decided they're going to change their policy where they're going to specifically ask people from the groups that could potentially be harmed by something to to give their opinions before papers are going to be published. And it's like, well, are they scientifically qualified to do this? Like, this is, this is just, like, it's, it's placing bias directly into the scientific process. And they claim that it's there to counter some sort of bias, but no, the, the, the solution to countering bias is to counter the, is to root the bias out. It's not to add more biases that are just going to potentially uh, counterbalance ones that exist in there already. This is the wrong way to go about. I love what those people are called though, like that job title. I wonder how much it pays. It's a sensitivity sensitivity readers. Yeah. Like that's that's the little name of the people who do it. Like, I mean, they're, just, they're paid to be offended by, or at least look for any potential way that they can spin something into being offended. I mean, I could spin anything into being offensive. Yeah, you can do this with anything. <laughs> I was I was using a, a like a really far out example a couple of years ago, but now I'm just kind of wondering if it, it would actually happen. It's, so there's that disease where some people are really sensitive to sunlight and actually causes them almost physical pain. Mm-hmm. So if I was to say, "Oh, it's a beautiful sunny day," someone who has that can then accuse me of hate speech. It could be triggering to them because they can't enjoy a sunny day. Or, I mean, have you have you seen that? Have you seen that uh, Twitter thread by? to Tanya McGrath, where they go, it's like, here's a list of everything that's racist. Yeah, and yeah. even the things that she's predicted beforehand, like she mentioned something about how uh, skyscrapers were sexist because they're just, they're so phallic. And then I can't remember what magazine it was, but then you get some left-wing news source that talks about how, you know, how phallic buildings are, are sexist. And it's just like, oh my God, we've, we've just moved beyond parody at this point. Like you can't even... Like the, the oh, no, onion it's... and the Babylon Bee, like they're they're trying to stay ahead of the curve, but it's getting hard because it's they're almost indistinguishable <laughs> from the normal news. Oh no! You, like any crazy thing you can come up with now, like within a couple of days, or, or I should say, a couple of days, within a couple of months, I, I think you could start seeing it. I mean, okay, I was this is 
to, I was speaking to a couple of people and I, and I said this because I started seeing it, especially over the summer in some of the riots and the protests. And I said, I give it two years max and anti-Semitism is going to be defined or is going to be tried to be defined as you can only be anti-Semitic to Jews of color. And within a couple of weeks of me saying that, on Twitter, I started seeing the term Jews of color. Again, going back to like the summer and stuff, people are saying, oh, well, Anne Frank, she was a white Jew, and you're just taking, you're using the Holocaust to center it on whiteness. George Floyd has a, or had an exhibit at the Holocaust Museum in Florida. I'm like, okay, you know, I, I don't, I'm not agreeing with what happened to him. What happened to him was horrible, but how does that go in the Holocaust Museum? Like, aren't you belittling what actually happened? you know, with, with the Holocaust, like, you know, it was 6 million Jews, 12 million people all told in systematic killing. And to compare what happened to, you know, George Floyd to that. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, the problem is no one's going to step up and say to remove this because it's a George Floyd memorial. And wouldn't you be a monster? Like what? You don't think this is a bad, this is something that should be memorialized and nuance out the door. You can't, you can't make the point where this is the Holocaust museum. We shouldn't be, that's not, that's not what's going to be on the headline. <laughs> Obeyed Omer against memorial to George Floyd. <laughs> oh no, there's whatever. I'm, I'm sure some. I'm, I'm on some list somewhere on Twitter that I'm you know a horrible person. These people who keep arguing that you know sex and gender is this spectrum. There's no such thing as binary. Have really rigid binary thinking. Yeah, sure. Like you know, either you're you're racist or you're anti-racist or yeah, definitely good and evil. I don't want to keep you too too much longer, but just one last little thing on this is. I've heard about it in the States and I see it in Iran and Pakistan. So in the States, I hear that religious families, when all of this trans stuff started coming out, they thought of that as a good way to not have a gay kid anymore. So the kid would transition and now they're a straight kid. Now Iran and Pakistan does it and code pink and pink news cheers them on because look how you know progressive they are. They give out free trans surgeries, but you're giving out trans surgeries because you find a you know, gay or lesbian couple and they, one of you can change or both of you die. Again, how does the biology department side with religious nuts? Like, shouldn't that give you some pause? Like, shouldn't someone in the biology department just go, wait a minute, we're getting support from the wrong people here? Yeah, you'd think. I mean, that's that's why, I mean, a big reason why I left academia is because I just saw the sort of writing on the wall for people like me who were going to keep writing articles and pushing back against against what's happening to, to the biological sciences. Yeah, I mean, it's anything that just fits the narrative is what is what goes. If it's anti-American narrative, then yeah, all of a sudden, Iran and all these other countries who are giving trans surgeries are looked at as good, even if the details, the opposite is true. That's not what's that's that's, that's not what matters to them. If they can just get that talking point and then move on, uh, given how many people aren't going to follow up on it and actually look at the the nuances of why is it that this incredibly homophobic regime is giving trans surgeries like you'd think if they were so homophobic they'd be even more transphobic well there's important differences in cultural reasons why they do that but people don't want to look into the details yeah. well look, like i said i don't want to keep you too too long uh thanks for your time if you got any last words about how to look at gender and sex and let people know where you can get a hold of you and i, I know you started a, a new Substack, right so if you want to let people know about that and, i did yeah. yeah yeah thanks so i yeah i started a Substack. it's just colin wright dot substack dot com uh you can find me on twitter at uh swipe right that's right is my last name w-r-i-g-h-t uh, instagram at swipe right fitness and uh i think that's i think that's all i got going on now i think we covered a lot of good ground yeah. so well thanks awesome. a lot for coming back on 
and uh, thanks everyone for listening.